0: Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we are joined by Professor of Black Studies and Political Science, writer and organizer Cedric Johnson. We discuss his important new book, After Black Lives Matter, the crisis of police violence and mass incarceration in the United States, the necessity of recognizing class and political differences within the Black American population, and why solidarity is better than allyship. Bonjour.
1: Hi. Bonjour. Hi.
0: Bonjour, hi, toute la journée it goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi, toute la journée goes. hi. hi. hi, la journée goes. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi, toute la journée man, goes. goes. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled.
2: Uh, we're super happy today to be joined by uh, Cedric G. Johnson, um, who is a professor of Black Studies and Political Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a member of the UIC United Faculty Local 6456. Thanks for being with us, Cedric.
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for hey, coming thanks on for the having. podcast.
1: Yeah,
2: thanks um, for Um
0: Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and what you do for listeners who aren't familiar?
3: Yeah, so I've been uh, working as a time academic since 2001. I also was an adjunct before that. And most of my work focuses on Black politics since the 1960s. Um, But since then, I mean, a lot of my work has responded to new conditions, new challenges. I've written about neoliberalization in cities, uh, especially in the context of the the, uh, 2005 Hurricane Katrina disaster. I've also written a lot, you know, in, in more recent years about the carceral expansion. Even though that's been a part of my life since the 1980s, as somebody who grew up in Louisiana, so I experienced that mm. state's uh, transformation firsthand. You know, as a teenager in an early 20-something. Mm. So my work kind of shifts, you know, as far as direct subject matter over the last two decades, but the, the focus has always been. Uh, trying to push for more anti-capitalist politics, but also a more critical appreciation of uh, American life and, and, and trying to think of Black politics as not being something separate,
1: mm.
0: but rather
3: very much connected to all the other contradictions we see within the society. So that's pretty much been my, my focus intellectually.
0: Yeah, we use, so the, the focus today is going to be on your new book, which is mm. called After Black Lives Matter. We've both been just reading it. Um, and really enjoying it. Um, And so yeah, we're going to just be asking you a lot of questions to kind of break down the main thrusts of this book, which I think is such an important book. And I really hope that listeners get a copy of it, um, because I think it does some really important interventions into the discussion on policing and police violence in the United States.
2: Yeah. And I really appreciate what you just said about trying to show people that black politics in the US is like part of American politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people kind of, like really struggle with that, and you know, it's interesting being because we're not American, right? Uh-huh. Um, how what goes on in Black politics in the U.S. is actually really important for the rest of the world because it's exported uh-huh. because it's happening uh-huh. in America, which is this sort of like giant cultural um, force, right? Uh, that just exports its its uh, its worldviews and its ideas to the rest of the world. Um, right. And so yeah, what happens uh what happens in Black America happens to all of us to a certain degree, right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so it's that's why I think it's like a really important book. Um and it was it's an amazing book, by the way. I finished yeah. reading it uh the other day and I was yeah.
0: So Basically, I want to really break it down because I think a lot of our listeners, they're coming out of what we call social justice orthodoxy. They're coming out of a very identitarian understanding of all of this. Um, And part of what our podcast does is speaks to people who are inside that culture, who are trying to get, you know, maybe access to some different ideas about things that are highly censored within social justice orthodoxy. And so Mm -hmm. your book like flies in the face of – most of the mainstream like lefty liberal understandings of all of this. Um, And I think that a lot of the ideas are going to be new for some of our listeners. Um, And so I just want to make it as as clear as possible for them. So there's this understanding that policing and mass incarceration and police violence in the United States directly is about anti-Black racism as the primary motivating factor and that it comes directly out of the history of slavery and Jim Crow. And it is like Mm. a new form of that, basically. And you take like a historical materialist perspective where you're actually looking very closely at history and what has happened. And you're suggesting a different source of the current situation. And you're rooting it more in more recent developments um, post-World War II and the development of neoliberalism. So do you uh, wanna explain that to our listeners?
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so let me start with one one uh, immediate problem, You know, the one you identified as far as locating the origins of prison expansion and mass incarceration mm-hmm. in, in slavery or in Jim Crow. Part of the problem here is that many of these ideas come out of, of activists. Campaigns and activist work, which is not on its on its face a bad thing, right? Uh yeah, people are advocating for particular constituencies. And, you know, in all honesty, black civil rights organizations were the first ones to begin focusing on the carceral expansion, you know, during the 19 uh eighties and 90s, you know, uh-huh. during the Reagan Bush years. And they did so in ways that took the, the technologies and discourses they're already familiar with, which is an anti-racist politics. And they applied that to the predicament of blacks in jails and prisons, you know, during that period and who were also facing police uh, violence. So it's like, we start there, right? With a position of advocacy uh, within the context of, of real campaigns to try to stop, you know, the rising numbers of, of young black men in prison. But that shouldn't be our interpretation of, of history, right? So mm-hmm. I think the, the problem is when we see the leap of people like Michelle like Alexander and others from activist slogans directly mm-hmm. to an, an interpretation of history. So she, she literally takes the, the title of her book and its thesis as uh, inspired by an activist slogan, right? That this was the new mm-hmm. Jim that we're witnessing um, in places like Louisiana and across the U.S. Uh, so that's, that's part of the problem, right? That people are well-intentioned. They want to address problems that they see directly in front of them, mm-hmm. but, um, they're not taking the next step and thinking beyond their own immediate political focus, which is uh-huh. on addressing the needs of, of black, uh, constituencies. And to be honest, I had th- those views too, right? Back in the eighties. Uh-huh. I mean, I thought it was a black problem, but whenever we step back and take a longer view at history, um, it's impossible to hold on to this idea that this is rooted in slavery or in the 13th Amendment, you know, um, given the fact that whites still constituted the majority of the American uh, jail and prison population until relatively late in the game, not, you know, it's not until 1980
1: uh-huh. that we
3: begin to see those numbers completely uh, change over to where Blacks and Latinos are a plurality in the system, right, so... um. That's where my work starts, right? That we have to look at what the American prison system looked like historically, that many working class whites, you know, were very much, you know uh, the dominant numbers in in jails and prisons, especially during the middle of the twentieth century, and then it's really late that those numbers change. And even when we talk about why they changed, it's not because all black people are threatened by uh, police uh, repression, by arrest, by conviction and incarceration, uh-huh. it's a particular part of the Black population. And I think that's mm-hmm. the more difficult thing probably for uh, some of your audience and, and certainly for a lot of people in the United States, is to be discerning when they talk about Black people, right? So
1: uh-huh.
3: uh, I say this all the time, Toure Reed makes the same case. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the Black population in the U.S. is bigger than the population of Canada right? But we don't talk about it with the same level of respect and seriousness and nuance that we would the population of Canada. We make all sorts of terrible generalizations. And one of the main ones we hear from people is this, this ignorance of, uh, real class interests, real class position Uh that distinguishes different segments of the black population. So, uh, my concern is, yeah, there are many black people who are being affected by policing and, and, uh, carceral power but it's not everybody right it's actually uh-huh. a particular segment of the black population who um, tend to be uh, either unemployed um, unemployable or pushed into conditions where they have to rely on criminalized forms of work in order to survive right uh-huh. yeah and so it's not it's not everybody and, that, and that's true of whatever group you're talking about right so yeah. if we go to the, the plain states, we're gonna find you know, many more whites who are engaged in the same sort of uh, work, because it is work, even if it's, it's considered illegal, um, in order to survive. And so I think that's the, that's the bigger issue uh, for me and where I try to start with the book. Let's, let's talk about this, there's a class character to
1: mm-hmm.
3: policing and carceral uh, power, and it, it really affects particular segments of the black population. And particular segments of the white and and Latino populations and other groups as well.
0: When you are talking about this, you use this term surplus population Um, and and basically how this surplus population um, of people who are basically kept in this state of abject poverty, who are kept out of employment and opportunities for making money in non-criminalized ways um, Mm. and that this need for a surplus population like developed due to specific historical changes and like developed due to things that were happening in changes in the United States and the way that capitalism was functioning. Mm-hmm. So do you want to just like explain that a little bit for people who have no idea what a surplus population is? Like, why is there this increase of people who do rely on criminalized forms of work, who are totally pushed out of more, quote, legitimate means of making a living? And and why did this population increase so much in the United States?
3: Yeah, so like that term surplus population bothers some people, right? Um, They see Uh it as a mean term that refers to people who are like disposable or not necessary. And it does have its roots in, uh, you know, Thomas Malthus and concerns about population control um, and overpopulation, you know, not having enough resources to meet the needs of a population. What Marx, did, Marx does in his response to uh, Malthus is he basically says that, you know, it's not that there aren't enough resources, right? That the problem mm-hmm. is more so which people are made uh, obsolete or surplus given the, the necessity of, necessities of capital in a particular moment, right? And so um, I take up that part, right? I kind of move in that direction uh-huh. in terms of thinking about changes within the U.S. from the 19th 60s onwards, where we really begin to see uh, capital intensification in new ways, and in ways that are with us in even more, you know, frightening uh, forms right now. But you know, in the 1960s, you've got all sorts of black intellectuals who are writing about automation. They're writing about uh, mm-hmm. technological change in industry. The one who I focus on the most is James Boggs from Detroit, um, who was a Chrysler auto worker, and Boggs. Is really, uh, you know, just pressing and grasping the changes that are happening, not just in his plant, but in, in Detroit overall. And so he's not only concerned about what the threat of automation and what he calls cybernation, right—the use of, mm-hmm. of uh, computers to to manage and and um, and organize work—he's not only concerned about that and what it means for his union and his actual workplace, right? Um. But he sees in Detroit in the 1960s so many young black men who are standing on street corners, who are uh, in pool halls. And what he what he realizes is that these young people are not going to have the same opportunity he had to walk into a plant with relatively low skill and to take on a job that will allow him to purchase a house, purchase an automobile, have a a particular kind of of, uh, life. And he's worried about that, right? He refers to them, he doesn't use the term surplus population. He refers to them as outsiders, uh, untouchables. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and so he sees them in the same ways that they're people who are no longer needed. And I think we still see that now. Now, the thing about surplus population is we all, most of us, spend some time within the surplus population, right? If you're mm-hmm. in between jobs, you're not working. If you are um, you know, you might be living with a with a family member, um. You know, you might be uh, unemployed momentarily. Maybe you're in college in between semesters, right? We all can spend times when we're not necessarily wage wage earners. But what does it mean for that layer of society that um, never quite gets back into uh, wage labor, right? Those mm-hmm. persons who are completely excluded and who therefore have to rely on other other forms um, of work and I think that's the that's the challenge, right? And part of the problem, here's, here's a good example, right? Part of the mm-hmm. problem with the Black Lives Matter phenomenon. On the one hand, with every viral video, you end up with a situation where the fraternal order of police or some other, you know, blue lives force jumps out and tries to demonize the victim, right? right? Drag them, drag them through the mud and talk about their background and you know, criminal record or whatever else. And the response oftentimes from activists is to, to not talk about that, right?
1: Yeah.
3: Or to to um, avoid it. And I think we should do the opposite. We should emphasize, um, not as a way to impugn the people who are, who are killed yes. by police, but to think about the, the commonalities. I mean, so many of these folks who were uh, killed, some of the biggest cases that we've mm-hmm. looked at over the last decade, They've been people who who share similar, you know, predicament as far as, as class position, right? So, you know, uh, Eric Garner, you know, what is he doing when he's arrested, you know, and killed? He's selling uh, cigarettes, you know, Lucy's, you know, you buy a pack of cigarettes and you sell them individually on the street corner. Um, you know, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, same sort of situation, right? He's out in front of the gas station selling uh cds right like either you know pirated copies or used cds but that's what that's his job essentially um so many other people i mean freddie gray mike brown Mm -hmm. these folks had they had experience in like the drug trade right like not as major players but as small you know small involvement you know as as drug dealers um and there's a lot of that, right? So across the board, I mean, some of these folks were like, you know, under warrants because they couldn't pay their child support or mm-hmm. they had previous, you know, um, pre- previous infractions that dealt with like survival crimes.
1: Yeah. And so mm-hmm. we us talk
3: about this honestly, right? I mean, what does it mean to live in a, a country like the United States, right, with, with such tremendous wealth on one end, and you have other people who are not only forced to do uh dangerous forms of work sometimes to survive but then also totally criminalized as a result Mm -hmm. of it so i think that's a bigger problem and it's one that we can't quite get at if we simply focus on anti-black racism right we totally miss the -hmm. real connective thread and tissue between all these different incidents of police violence especially the ones that affect whites in other parts of the, the country
2: yeah um you put it really well in your book when you You wrote that people can easily see the race of people like Alan Sterling, Trayvon Martin, Freddie Gray. But right. that they're, uh, and I'm going to quote you here, um, their common position among the most submerged elements of the working class is not as readily legible for some audiences. Right. So in other words, people could tell they're black, but they can't tell that they're poor, you know. right? Um, and activists, in in an attempt to sort of like push back against right wing narratives that are trying to dehumanize these victims, um, will suppress information about the fact that these victims are are taking part in survival crimes, right? right. Which ultimately ends up kind of suppressing information about their class position. How do you think that we can make the class position of these victims visible while resisting the dehumanization that's so common on the right?
3: I mean, I think one thing is to simply just talk about it, right? To talk about policing in ways that, that implicates us, right? Because um, I think that's another part that's missing. As long as it's the, the racist, you know, Derek Chauvin type cop who we can all hate, it's easy for us to to look past the ways that we're all implicated within how police maintain not only um, the private property regime, but they also you know help to produce a certain kind of lifestyle that many of our mm. friends, connections, you know people we're 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 uh, in relationship with enjoy, right? So like you know gentrified zones within cities, mm. those are produced in large part. Through, uh, through policing, right? It's kind of an indirect benefit, mm-hmm. right? That, that you, can, you can move to a neighborhood in Toronto or Chicago or Washington, D.C. and not have to worry about crime because police are over, you know, in another part of the city, <laughs> making sure that they contain yeah. uh, whatever problems there might be, right? Um, the same in terms of tourism in so many cities around the world, right? I mean, these are places that are uh, strenuously policed, Uh, In an effort to try to not only make sure that that um, profit making continues for big, you know, international retailers and all sorts of other corporations that are involved in tourism everywhere. I mean, all these places are starting to look the same. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to the downtown zone in one city, you see all the same things in the U.S. There's like, you know, the same restaurants, the same stores, Akira, whatever else. All these places exist in these different spaces. Um, the same, you know, entertainment venues. And again, what people want when they're in those spaces is the semblance of safety, predictability, that they're not going to have trouble, not going to have problems. And the moment that that's uh, interrupted, it becomes a problem, right? It becomes mm. a public relations nightmare for urban governors, but it also becomes an issue for uh, those, those, uh, you know, elements of capital that benefit from tourism zones and what have you. So. Good, good example of that, in Chicago, you know, we always face these kind of seasonal problems of uh, teen wilding and uh, flash mobs and other issues within the downtown core. And again, we should emphasize how this is classed, right? That you have mm-hmm. young Black people in certain parts of the city that have completely been abandoned, right? There's no community centers, there's no other recreational opportunities for people. There's no retail within their own neighborhoods, you know, that might be worth patronizing. And so they do what everybody else does in the summertime. They they go downtown, right? They take the L to try to enjoy, you know, uh-huh. the few months that we get that are above, you know, uh, uh-huh. 70 degrees, right? And so um, when they do that, right, their presence is not welcomed, right? Um... They're seen as an invading presence. And as a result, they're heavily policed either directly through um, through the Chicago Police Department or indirectly through, you know, various curfews and other restrictions that are placed on young people who are moving through downtown. And so I think that the class dimensions of this are, are there, right? We just have to talk about them and insist that people see those uh, and not just get caught up in the the, the alleged racism of it all, because you know, one thing we've also seen is that in many of these these uh moments of police killings, the perpetrators are or uh are black people, right? Uh in Baltimore, all of the officers who were mm-hmm. were indicted were black. In mm-hmm. Memphis, you know, early this year, all of the officers who officers who were involved were black. And it's not enough to just retreat into this idea of, oh well, they just internalized racism, right? And yeah. <laughs> that's why they did what they did. They're carrying out a particular mode of policing that's designed to, um, again, protect the accumulation regime within these cities that are so dependent upon real estate development and and tourism, you know, for their for their survival and their their uh, reproduction. So, I just think we can we can talk about class, but it's just it's one of those conversations we can't have it. Um, In in like hot take videos, it has to be Uh sustained over time. It has to be, you know, in in deep engagement with people for them to actually get it. I mean, I'm able to do that in classrooms with Uh students who come in with the same perspective. But then over like, you know, the course of a semester, over the course of, you know, a few weeks, they start to see, you know, the contradictions in a different way. But they won't Uh get it, you know, if it's just like a quick, you know, a quick drop in.
0: Yeah, I think that like the – like capitalism has been so successful at blaming people who are living in abject poverty for their own misery, you know, Mm -hmm. and the the mythology around that is so thorough and we – collectively really revoke compassion from people right, who are living right. in those types of situations. And so it's like, because we have just all kind of conceded that like people who are struggling with like homelessness or like mm-hmm. like severe trauma and mental illness, addiction, doing like survival crimes, like these types of people are like exempt from human empathy and compassion, even mm-hmm. on the left, you know? Right, and right. so when we are acknowledging that these victims are actually members of this group, that they're actually part of this population who we typically exempt from compassion then people immediately assume that that means that we are trying to exempt these people from our compassion but we're Mm -hmm. actually saying this entire group deserves our compassion it's not their fault that capitalism has like you know totally and thoroughly stripped them of all their resources and everything that they would need to live a better life you know um Mm -hmm. yeah
3: yeah no that's Um, that's super important i think um and I think what you're describing is intensified in our own times, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Because of the pervasive insecurity that so many people are facing, right? And so when I talk to family members, friends, people who are not in my academic or activist world, there's, you know, people are struggling across the board. Mm-hmm. But I think the the predisposition to blame poor people for their conditions. Yes it's heightened in these situations where, you know, everybody else is kind of trying to manage, you know, and to be honest, I don't know how some people are making it, to be honest, I was in California this last, this last year, pretty much everybody I knew they had a roommate. You know, even folks who Mm -hmm. who were married, had kids, they were taking on boarders. We had a lot of, you know, uh, blended family situations, (laughs) a lot of like intergenerational, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, living that was happening. Just to survive. Right. And I mean, and there and and what was also interesting about California, it goes back to what you're saying, especially L.A. You know, there's a tendency there to disconnect the problem of homelessness or the unhoused Uh from the broader housing crisis within the city. Right. As Uh opposed to saying that, you know what, this is all connected. Right. This is actually, you know, the person who's living with borders is only on a slightly better, you know, part of the continuum than a guy who's like underneath the overpass in a tent that he pitched last night. Right. It's like literally the same sort of, of, uh, dynamics in terms of the unlivability of a place like LA, you know, real estate market that isn't about, you know, use values, actually housing people. It's about profit making.
2: Yeah. Um, Like in, in your, in your book, you, um, like you focus a lot of attention on the fact that black populations in the U.S. are not only disproportionately the victims of police violence, right? They're also disproportionately the victims of violent crime. Um, mm-hmm. And you link these two facts by pointing out that to, to root causes, which connect them both, um, especially including privatization and the housing crisis. You you, you uh, go into a lot of detail about that. Um, and this wave of privatization, which is like part of the, the neoliberal hegemony, Mm-hmm. um you write is uh fundamentally about reaping surplus value um not about creating a city where people's basic needs are addressed mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i really i really appreciate that you link um violent crime and over policing in this way mm-hmm. um and yeah could you just talk about how this this attitude towards privatization produces both over policing and crime
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah i mean you know um as far as the violent crime dimension, let me start with that part first. You know, um, another thing that we have to remind ourselves of, and i touch on this briefly in the book, there's other folks who've talked about it in much greater detail than people like James Foreman Jr. Um, in this book, Locking Up Our Own. There's also on the left, this tendency to think that the, the policing regime we have is a result of suburban whites or white fears only, only right? That was the main mm-hmm. driver behind it all. And what that misses, and I think what Foreman makes clear in his work, um, is that many black people had a had a tough on crime position, right? It was, it was motive, it had different motivations, right? It mm-hmm. wasn't motivated by a fear of black people. It was motivated by a fear of real crime, you know, and um having lived in a lot of different black neighborhoods and communities around um you know, around the country, you know, since, you know, since childhood, I mean, I've witnessed all sorts of violence against people, right? I've witnessed, um, you know, and been in shooting situations and, you know, in armed robberies, right? And so um, this is real. It's not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a figment of somebody's imagination. Uh Again, like the the backgrounds of people who are killed by police, we have to face it, right? We have to spend time thinking about, well, why is this, all this robbery? Why why do, why are we seeing these violent crimes within certain neighborhoods? And again, it comes back to immiseration, which is not an accident, right? But which is a consequence of um, decades of policies of abandonment, right? So you know, we think about um, you know, back to your point about privatization you know, how we really gutted the welfare state within this country, mm-hmm. right? And we have many people who've grown up, you know, uh, a lot of my my students' age, my own kids' age, who've never known a country that's generous in terms of uh, social spending, right? They've never known a country that would be engaged in massive investments in public works or other, you know, other programs. They've watched those things completely disappear from view. And, you know, they've lost faith in it even as a possibility, right? Uh-huh. And so I just think that, you know, that's something we also have to think about um, if we expect to to uh, take this in a more progressive, if not radical direction, right? Is How do we get people to believe in the possibilities of state interventions again? Because this process of privatization, you know, it, it not only creates massive insecurity, it creates desperation, but uh-huh. then that in turn, you know, which goes to your original question, that in turn just just opens the door to policing as the only uh, solution and and the, and the more immediate solution. We need help right now, right? And there's there's a resurgence of that since since George Floyd, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think a lot of the reforms that people imagined during 2020 didn't happen because there was still a real crime, you know, um, in certain cities. Maybe not the largest cities like LA and, and New York, but in mid sized cities and small towns, I mean, it's still grappling with questions of homicide, sexual assault, and other real, real issues, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, policing, of course, I'm not saying policing is the answer, but it's a problem that we have to address, uh, maybe in some other progressive way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that when people are so resistant to hearing this, because I think when people hear this, they immediately see it as blaming the victims. They see it as, right. okay, these over police communities who are experiencing all of this police violence. Now you're saying that it's because the crime that exists in the community. And so if we name that, then we're just dismissing like the very real trauma that the police are causing here. Right. Um, right. but it's like, you know, what you're arguing is that. The reason that that crime exists, like you're not making the same argument that, you know, racists make who are saying that, you know, these populations are just doing this because they're like that. They just are dysfunctional in some way. They're just violent in some way. But you're saying it's actually the conditions, the material conditions inside of these communities that are producing such abject poverty that people are pushed into situations of -hmm. crime and people are also super traumatized, you know? And so when people are super traumatized, they're struggling, of course there's going to be lots more crime in those types of situations. And then that is going to um, result in, police managing those populations and controlling them so that it doesn't leak out into the gentrified areas and the Mm -hmm. tourist areas that you were talking about and you Mm -hmm. have this phrase in the book where you say like abolish the conditions you know Mm -hmm. instead of just like abolish prisons which you know obviously you're you're saying there's people living in in communities where there's lots of crimes who feel totally threatened by such a statement like abolish the police abolish prisons they're like what are we going to do about all the crime and you're saying abolish the conditions that produce the crime in the first place
3: Yeah, I mean, I just think the the abolitionist argument that we've heard, you know, uh, for the last you know decade or more, uh, it's grown in in its support among uh, people on the left. I just don't think it has traction among the broader American population. I mean, it does, you know. We look at at uh, at some of the stats. I was talking to some students down in Urbana-Champaign recently, and one student asked me for my perspective on uh, No Cop Academy, right, you know, in in Atlanta. And, you know, it was a tough thing to say to this student who, like, again, well intentioned, you know, she cares about what's going on in the world. She Uh wants to see uh, progressive changes happen. And I had to gently tell her that, you know what, um, that might be important. And it's important for us to think about as people who are, like, you know, activists, intellectuals or whatever. But does it matter to, you know, your mom? Does it matter to to the people you grew up with? Does it matter in your hometown in the same ways it matters on this college campus? Mm. And when we look at public opinion polls, and I don't want to look at those as as somehow uh, the law, right? Um, But they do suggest that most Americans turned away from, you know, Support of even the most basic ideas that were articulated by Black Lives Matter, let alone the idea that we should, you know, defund police or scale back uh, policing. I, I think that's a battle we can win, but it's not going to be win. It's not going to be won simply by by telling people um, abolish the police. Right? It just doesn't. It doesn't cohere in context where folks are still facing uh, real crime for a lot of Black communities or where people may have, um, you know, fears about crime, irrational as they may be, they still tend to drive, uh, you know, some, some perspectives. The other thing too about abolition, beyond, you know, the real crime that exists, when you see things like what happened recently here in, in, in uh, Plainfield, the suburb outside of Chicago, right? Suburb, like Southwest Chicago. Um, where a landlord kills right. uh, a six-year-old Palestinian kid. I mean, even if we're talking about abolition as a future thing, that guy alone is a you know evidence of why we still need uh, courts and jails, right? I mean, that one incident alone, right this guy should be should be punished um and we should go able to do both of those at the same time. We should be able to point out that, there's pervasive insecurity and poverty and misery in the society that we need to address progressively, but we also need to maintain, you know, uh, at least some semblance of uh, justice in, in terms of, of our laws and our common values as a society when it comes to to homicides and, and this kind of heinous, you know, uh, uh-huh. crime against uh, a Muslim family, right? Which to me is just so absurd because the guy was their landlord uh-huh. and from what I understand, he, he at one point he built a treehouse for this kid. Wow. So, you know, this is a this is a real issue now. Another thing somebody might say, you know, about the same instance, this guy clearly had other things going on, right? Right. Um, for him to go from building a treehouse for this kid ultimately to to uh, taking his life, maybe there are other interventions that are possible, right? In that in that mm-hmm. kind of situation, but we're not going to get there by just simply, you know, browbeating people about abolishing police or doing away with with uh with the carceral system altogether, um but yeah, yeah. you know th- another thing too and i'll just say this quickly whenever you confront people about the limitations of the abolitionist argument mm-hmm. an immediate response is that well that's not exactly what we mean we don't mean complete right. you know abolition we mean scaling back right sizing and what have you so to me it's always a bit of a shell game like whatever you whatever you try to criticize That's not what it is, right,
2: for for people
3: who are faithful and devoted to to, uh, that particular set of ideas.
2: Yeah, it strikes me that the the desire to abolish the police or abolish prisons entirely um, at face value is like a coherent ethical position in the same way that Mm -hmm. like being a pacifist is a coherent ethical position. Mm-hmm. um but as a political position it needs like a lot of contextualization for it to make any sense you know mm-hmm. and like as as you know if we imagined um the abolition of police and prisons tomorrow in the united states right we know exactly what that would look like you would have private police and private prisons like overnight mm-hmm. right um and so it, the the conditions like that produce crime um need to be changed and the mm-hmm. conditions that make it so that the only way we have to deal with crime is to incarcerate people um, after they commit the crimes um, mm-hmm. also need to be changed, right? Um, I'm going to pivot slightly, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's related. Um, so a lot of prominent figures within the Black Lives Matter movement um, use a lot of socialist-sounding rhetoric. Um, many of them sincerely think of themselves as socialists. Um what do you think explains the kind of disconnect between the way they view themselves and your critique of their movement as being kind of easily taken up by neoliberal elites?
1: Right. Yeah.
3: I mean, you know, to go back to, you know, in the paraphrase, you know, at least one moment of, of Marx, right. You know, book Marxists are not Marxists. Right. <laughs> and so <laughs> there are many people who, who, uh, who, um, yeah, who laid claim to socialism. I mean, this is a concept which I'm happy it's it's widely circulated. I'm happy more people are offering uh-huh. criticisms of capitalism within the U.S. Those were not a part of my adolescence, you know, that, that that time because of the Cold War. So I'm happy to see these ideas in circulation again. But there's a tremendous amount of confusion about what that means. And I think some of these people embrace socialism as an identity. And not necessarily oh. as a politics, right? Which would require them to be much more reflective about their own position within within the society. I mean, I don't know too many socialists, um, you know, from like the beginning of the the nineteenth century, you know, uh, in mean twentieth century, who are were um, as wealthy <laughs> as some of these people can claim to be, who uh, moved about within elite circles in the ways that they can. And who don't show any real um, concern about, you know, um, criticizing capitalism in, in, in a real way and, and opposing it in a real way, right? Uh-huh. So, for instance, um, you know, I said this recently on, on a friend's uh, podcast, but I'll say it again. I don't see how, how somebody can pose as a socialist and then take a $20,000 um, honorarium at a university in the U.S. where so many of these places have grad students who can't even survive because they're not getting paid, right? Uh-huh. They have uh, adjunct faculty who are not being paid. And you're going to go to these places and do a, a 45-minute talk and get paid $20,000 and you're a socialist, right? Like, there's all sorts of other ways that could go. Um
1: uh-huh. You know,
3: I understand everybody has to survive, but that's, that's literally the full salary, you know, for, for, for <laughs> adjuncts <laughs> for and for sure. other people working on some of these campuses. And so yeah. I, I don't, I, that's never sat right with me. And, and that's been going on for a while. I mean, back like in the, in the nineties, um, you know, I remember people, you know, one, one speaker in particular that got paid uh, 20000 you know, at a campus where I was a grad student and we were outraged by it, right? Because they gave this person 20,000 and then there was another historian who we all adored, you know, the, the late John Henry Clark, who was, uh, you know, had been a communist at one point, but really was a big Black uh, black nationalist and Pan-Africanist, you know, uh, by the time, you know, we got to know him. And um, he was given a pittance, basically, you know, to be on the mm-hmm. campus. This was somebody who had like, Lived in Harlem and knew all these luminaries from the you know late New Negro period, various communist folks, all sorts of people during the Black Power period. and like and and he doesn't get you know paid in this moment. So I just think some of this is just posing. It's not real oh. commitments to socialism. or at best, it might be um, you know, an affection for some of the ideas right, that they want to address, you know, the excesses of capitalism, but it's basically like another form of liberalism, what it is socialism. Mm -hmm. So until I see those same people, you know, literally live those politics in a different way, which would mean to not simply take the twenty to $30,000 honorarium, or take it and do something different with it, right, you know, uh, which would be something else. I mean, you know, for instance, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, Uh has has gestured towards socialism yeah we know that what he's done in boston is you know a a contemporary recreation of you know booker t washington's you know tuskegee machine right i mean incredible amounts of wealth funneled into this one um you know unit that he's created Uh and without a whole lot to show for it right i mean let's just be honest so Here's a good comparison, right? Most black studies programs and departments when they're created in the late 60s and early uh, 70s um, have at least a commitment to the communities in in the cities where they're located. Some of them do, right? To the extent where they would even build uh, extension centers, right? We're gonna like not have um, black studies is a thing of the Ivory Tower, but we're actually going to have it embedded in black communities, right? So when I was at, at Ohio State, we still had a community extension center on the east side of Columbus. And, you know, you would hold like community classes. You know, uh-huh. there's no fee structure, there's no barrier to entry, right? No uh-huh. paywall. Um, you would also allow the space to be used by people in, in those communities if they needed to for receptions or whatever else. And so there was at least an attempt to try to think about right. how do we make the study of Black people, the study of, of you know, power and, and inequality in the U.S. germane to people who are living in our midst, right? There's no pretense of that with yep. uh, Kendi's, you know, whole operation in, in uh, Boston. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a way to, you know, to court clout and to, to build, you know, a massive an empire as far as uh, publishing. But I haven't seen any indication that that is, is anti-capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let alone socialist, right? So I just think like a lot of this is just posing. And as long as it's, it's fashionable for these people to say that they're socialists, they'll yeah. say it, right? Totally. As long as it puts, gives them an edge, gives them some spice, they'll do it. But, but, but they don't really mean it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't mean it.
0: Yeah. When when reading your book and just in what you're saying now, I can't help but think about Darren Seals, the activist out of Ferguson. I don't know if you knew mm-hmm. his work at all, but he was part of Hands Up, Don't Shoot. Mm-hmm. And he was like openly critical of Black Lives Matter coming mm-hmm. into Ferguson. And the way that he saw it is he saw these like university uh educated he was a like a factory worker like mm-hmm. union guy working class and he was doing very like place-based activism in ferguson with his own community that also mm-hmm. was both against police violence but was also against gun violence and was also against right. like crime and gun violence that was going on and he didn't see those two things as separate mm-hmm. and then black lives matter came in And he had these videos where he talked about them and he called them Twitter fingers was like his Mm. insult to them where he was talking about these like very like university educated. And people called him homophobic because he was pointing out that all of these university educated BLM people, like a lot of them were queer. Mm. um, And they were coming in and they were like, you know, basically he was like, they're taking our money and they're taking all the attention and they're taking clout and they're leaving, you know. Um, And I just like – People don't see the class differences between like a like university focused, mm-hmm. um, upwardly mobile, like what Adolf Fried calls the PMCs, who are actually mm-hmm. like using these. Um, movements to actually advance their own careers and to get Mm -hmm. these honorariums and to make money. And then how this can be very like extractive from like a working class community that is actually trying to organize for what they actually need in their own community would probably be things like, I don't know, like jobs, uh, maybe daycares, like maybe like community centers, places for people to go, like this type of thing. So, I mean, I guess the question I want to ask is like in – Whenever I talk about this stuff, people constantly come at me telling me that, you know, I'm speaking over Black voices or, like, right. there's, right. like, a Black perspective that I need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. And so in this way, like, the diverse class differences and also political differences within Black American population get totally flattened. And we have, mm-hmm. like, Imram Kendi speaking on behalf of Black Americans. Um, and then we have Canadians saying that that's the Black experience. Right. Right. Why is it so important for people to understand that there are class differences that then produce different political commitments within um, the black population of the United States?
2: And why is it so hard for people to understand that right. in the first place? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, I think some of it, you know, uh, some of it, at least in the U.S., has to do with proximity and you know the 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 expansion of cities that I talk about in the book, where, you know, you get these, you know, super white suburbs, um, which are also different as far as whites, because they're they're very much calibrated towards particular incomes and and occupations, and people can afford the mortgages to live in those places. That sort of isolation, you know, puts people in a position where they're not having contact,
1: Mm -hmm. you know,
3: the kind of cross-class contact that would have existed in you know earlier parts of the twentieth century um you know cities that were more densely populated and and more spatially if not integrated, at least there's proximity right so I think we're in that situation where people just don't have contact, they don't have proximity, and therefore they rely on on who they see as like credible voices, you know um and also it's just easy to do that right because the the work that would be involved in in um taking Black politics seriously, Black life seriously enough to say, okay, well, there's there's all sorts of different perspectives uh-huh. that are operating among the Black population. There's all sorts of different positions. Um, that takes work, right? It's easier to just, you know, sit back and buy Kendi's book or, you know, Tanahasi Coates's Coates' book or whoever and read those as proxies for the Black population writ large uh, and not really again, try to get a real understanding of what's going on. I think it's vitally important for us to do it because that's the only way we can begin to see that we have a life in common and that
1: Mm.
3: a discussion about black wealth is not the discussion we need in order for the vast majority of people across the United States and Canada and everywhere else to see that we're all in a particular predicament, right? We're all in the same situation. Like I said, with the folks in, in Los Angeles, they can't see it because they see the homeless guy as the victim of his own, you know, bad right. decisions. And they're just simply being squeezed by uh, the, the housing market. Right. As opposed to saying, well, everybody's being squeezed. Everybody's in a situation that is um can be corrected. If we think about housing in other ways. Right. If we think about, you know, rent controls and um you know, uh, council housing or public housing, cooperatives and all sorts of other modes as legitimate, you know, uh, remedies for the problems that we're facing. But I just think it's much easier, you know, back to the issue of Black people, it's much easier to rely on these proxies. And it's also a function of racism, right, to believe Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, white people can have a tremendous amount of intellectual and political diversity. But black people are all hard pressed and all have had been so downtrodden and experienced the same kinds of, of uh, hardships. And we should feel sorry for them. Right. We should feel sorry for them. We should feel guilty about uh, the situation that black people have experienced. And so I think that gets in the way of honest conversation uh-huh. um, about what's going on. And I mean, I, I faced it. I'll I face the, the, the same problems you have in a different form. So if I'm talking like this, what people automatically do is try to paint me as somehow not connected to the real activism that's happening, right? They'll say, well, you know, the real activism is over here and, you know, you're you're not aware of it, right? Or worse, the most bold person will try to confront me and and say, uh, paint me as inauthentic, right? I'm out of touch with you know, what's going on with, you know, other black people. And that's, that's absolutely not the case, right? Like I said, I've lived, you know, up until my mid twenties, I was only in black spaces. Uh Um, And so I don't really, you know, it gives me a chance to really push back. Uh, But what they're trying to do is distract, you know, from the reality that they don't really have, uh, a legitimate comeback, and they don't want to talk about, you know, the fact of real class differences and class politics, which do a disservice—not just a disservice. It's too light. It actually, mm-hmm. uh, it actually impugns black people, right? And it, and it, and ultimately, it suppresses all sorts of other legitimate voices, like, uh, you know, Darren's in Ferguson, right? When you mm-hmm. simply say that, well, any black person can be the spokesperson. Yeah. And maybe even worse that those persons, right, the folks who are coming from the university are the best prepared to speak the voice of the Black mass, right? I mean, that's just, again, it's rooted in racism, right? It's rooted in an earlier period when Black people were not able to participate uh, legally in politics. And so you had a few go-betweens who would serve as the, you know, the arbiters of the Black, you know, Black will.
1: Mm-hmm. And we're
3: still stuck with that in some ways, you know?
2: Yeah. Must be incredibly fucking frustrating to be treated that way. Um yeah, you so you've you've pushed back a lot against um the the whole kind of complex of like ethnic politics, which is interesting mm-hmm. because obviously you're you're a black studies professor, you clearly think right. that there's some room for ethnic politics. Right. Um, but uh you write in your book that uh ethnic politics cannot produce popular consent for a more just social order since mm-hmm. its um, essentialist logics of race representation and constituency run counter to building broad social mm-hmm. power. So this mm-hmm. very much flies in the face of what we might call social justice orthodoxy, right? Which is mm-hmm. very uh, which is very impressed with ethnic politics, if you can put it that way. Um, can you explain this stance? Like, why can't ethnic politics deliver what we need?
3: Well, it just takes us in a different direction, right? So like, and it's difficult, like you said, about being in Black Studies. You know, Black Studies historically was a much more ecumenical uh project, right? I mean, as you think about certain departments. I was in a department as a grad student that had Marxists, it had feminists, it had, you know, it had African scholars who didn't like any of the American, you know, political tendencies at all. They saw themselves as totally
1: separate. Mm-hmm.
3: So um, you know, as a project, when I think about Black studies or ethnic studies, you know, the in its best moments, it's been a space where people could actually offer critical analysis from different, you know, different uh, positions, right? But um, as far as ethnic politics as a form, you know, it just totally takes us in a different direction, right? It assumes one of the biggest problematic assumptions of it. It assumes that that uh, identity and constituency are, are roughly the same right Mm. that you know my interests and the interests of some other black person are are knowable relatively uh clear-cut and they're the same right and they're Mm -hmm. they're certainly not right i mean they're they're not when we really begin to investigate and look closely at at a black life with any with any seriousness Mm -hmm. um and so that's the problem with it you know as far as ethnic politics it 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 starts out with this this view that identity and constituency are synonymous, right? When they're really not, they're really not. And so we see that, you know, you can go back to the Ferguson example, which I think is great. And I'll give you a couple of examples as well. But like with Ferguson, that was one of the first battles we saw between um, a local Black Lives Matter protest, or just say a local protest against Uh the killing of Michael Brown uh-huh. And what Black Lives Matter represented, which was, uh-huh. you know, something else, something that was um, foundation friendly from its beginning, something that was uh, largely derived from online, you know, uh, uh-huh. social media campaigning.
2: figures. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, definitely. And then also something that was uh, temperamental and not grounded in Ferguson as a community. And so yeah. the moment that you know, the conditions change and some other outrage happens elsewhere. Those same people pack up, you know, move, move to another another city. And so I think we really saw that contradiction. And, and mm-hmm. people on the ground in Ferguson, there's a lot that was written by local activists who resented, you know, uh, the presence of, you know, all these outsiders who um, who changed things, right? They changed the focus. They changed some of the the emphasis that people locally wanted. But we see these conflicts everywhere. I mean, in terms of like school reform, you know, and privatization of schools across the country, you look at these issues, there's black people on both sides, right? On the matter of of um you know decarceration, there's black people on both sides. Uh-huh. Uh, on matters of um, you know, even even Trumpism, right, there's black uh-huh. people on both sides, right? So I just think that this is like a, an anachronistic way of viewing the uh-huh. African-American population. It survives because it's advantageous to particular individuals and groups who want to, you know, again, they they benefit from it to keep the narrative going. Um, but in the end, it takes us away from doing the things that we should do, which is thinking about constituency differently. It's not constituency is not about identity, it's about interests, it's about mm. what we have in common. And that's how we begin to build, you know, uh, some workable uh, politics. I mean, one of the best examples of this going back to my time when I lived in Rochester, New York. We had a campaign to try to uh, deal with lead paint poisoning in the mm-hmm. city of Rochester, right? Which had like really high rates of poisoning among children because there's a lot of old housing mm-hmm. stuff, right? And. Of course, black and brown children were the main ones who were being affected by this because of where they lived. Older neighborhoods, dilapidated housing, absentee landlords who didn't keep up their places. Uh-huh. And so that was concentrated in the area of, of uh, Rochester that was the poorest part of the city, right? When we started organizing for the, against this, right, and trying to, trying to come up with a, a, a response from the city council, when you looked at the coalition of people, it's not just uh, blacks and Latinos, right? There's all sorts of folks who came to that that uh, that campaign for different reasons. You had students, you had faculty members, you had social mm-hmm. workers, you had you know K through twelve teachers who were all concerned about it, right? Mm-hmm. We entered into that with different perspectives, different backgrounds, but we we entered into it as comrades, right? And I mm-hmm. think. That's the distinction that we need to make, right? It's not about these hierarchies, you know. Oh, the black uh, people get to speak first on the issue. Some black people's views on things are not the ones I want to take, uh-huh. right? And they're in the wrong position to take, right? I mean, I've seen all sorts of people who've been pro-Israel uh-huh. in the last, the last uh-huh. few uh last couple of weeks. I'm like, what the hell? Like, how did they arrive at that particular position? Uh-huh. But I don't have to side with them because they're yes. black, right? I have to take the position that I know to be the right one. And so Going back to Rochester, you know, when we looked at that coalition, it was mostly, you know, um, people who were opposed to seeing any other kid poisoned by, by a lead. Right, baby. right. When we got to some of those city council meetings, you look across the room and the landlords, they're also diverse. Right. The landlords, right. There's black people, there's Latinos, there's all sorts of folks who want to not pay uh, right. to try to correct this problem. And so I just think we gotta grow up in terms of our politics. I mean, <laughs> yes. we gotta get away from this, you know, these simple formulas about, you know, which group I'm a part of and what what our views are. I mean, it's not, it's not so easy, right? I mean, and, and we should be at this stage of, of history, right? We should be able to discern um, you know, some of these real, real gulfs within the black population, but also the commonalities. That cut across yes. uh, recent at this in the U.S. for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think it's so important. And like you have this thrust and this push towards solidarity and like finding common ground. Right. And like any kind of serious left project that actually wants to be successful needs numbers. Numbers. Like that's what we're constantly saying on this podcast is like, we need numbers. We're not going to do anything with just like a a tiny group of people who are like posting about stuff on Instagram. Like we need mass numbers if you want to organize for change. And the only way to get those mass numbers is to be willing to work with people who are actually quite different from ourselves. Right. And, and to build solidarity across difference so that we can, um, actually make changes
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: and like instead we have this allyship model that is constantly being um, put forward where people are actually being told to like repress their own like needs and to like defer to the needs of others sometimes even to defer to the needs of others who are in a higher class position than they are right like Mm -hmm. we see this happening on social media and it's quite disgusting to me when somebody is like living paycheck to paycheck and they're being told to like venmo someone who potentially has access to a lot more money, but has like an identity that is being seen as marginalized. And so, you know, I think regular working people, people who are fucking poor, people who have to have like roommates because they can't afford their rent, people Mm -hmm. who are just like struggling to get by, like actually deeply resent this allyship like framework Mm -hmm. because it's like, put aside your own needs and work for somebody else. When in fact, like the, the message of solidarity is like, we are all totally fucked right now. Possibly we could work together. Um, So can you just talk to us about solidarity versus allyship and like, how do you think we can get people on the solidarity train?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think allyship as a phenomenon, again, it's a function of ethnic politics. And for people who who evoke it, it's a way to ensure that their position is, is maintained, right? That mm. their position of influence, that their position of leadership is maintained within um within organizations or, you know, online debates, wherever it is. Um, it also is something, it's also just lazy, right? Because it this idea that because somebody is of a particular group, that they have something important to say, right? Or that they, they have a set of experiences that distinguishes them from everyone else. I mean, this is the old standpoint of epistemology you uh-huh. know, going back to the sixties, just going haywire right at this point. Where where we, you know, we're still we're still using identity again as a proxy for what somebody's about, right? And you all know just from being involved in different different struggles and campaigns, you know, one, you don't know where how what kind of connection you're gonna have with somebody when you start. Just like I said with the Rochester situation, like I didn't know those mm-hmm. people, but we knew that we were all opposed to the same problem, right? We mm-hmm. all want to try to stop the same problem. We also know that through social struggles, we can be transformed, right? I think allyship denies us that possibility mm. of, of engaging people and really beginning to discover, you know, what things we have in common, discovering our own limitations, being transformed by the experience. So I think the allyship, uh, you know, strategy or or I don't even know what to call it. It's it's a, a ruse that I actually mm-hmm. like. Distracts us from the real the real work of political organizing and being you know finding a life in common with other people. The other thing too about it, I'll say, you know, as far as allyship, um I just I mean, I just don't I don't uh, I've been in too many all black settings to take that shit seriously, right? I've mm-hmm. been in too many settings with like all black people where there's hierarchies, there's bullies. I- there's people whose politics are, are bankrupt. There are folks who undermine the work that we're doing. And so the idea that when we're in a diverse setting, that the people who, who oh. we imagine are more historically offended, you know, uh, should have the, the privilege of speaking first or, you know, whatever else, this is nonsense, right? And it really, it really takes us away from, again, doing the hard work of, you know, getting to know the people we're trying to, to work with and focusing on what we really want, you know, what we want to focus on in, in that moment, that campaign, what we have in common. I just think it's, it's a serious distraction. And, and like I said, I've been in too many rooms with people who was, you know, alleged social justice warriors. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the reputation they have outside the room. And I've seen all sorts of skullduggery and bad behavior, and it's just not, it's just its just distracting, and it's just something uh-huh. we shouldn't engage in anymore. I think we should take people's, you know, um, intentions to be involved in a particular campaign or in some other, um, you know, political project as, as real until they prove us wrong, right? And it shouldn't just be this kind of deferential posture, well, let's let uh-huh. the you know, it's patronizing also, it can, it can yeah. be patronizing, you know, to be like, oh, we'll let all the, let's let all the, the uh, you know, the people with disabilities in the room speak first, right? I mean, I understand some of the impulse that we don't want to have like the same guy get up every time and drive yeah. everybody out. Like that's a problem, but I don't know if allyship or, uh, you know, the kinds of deference, you know, epistemic mm. deference, I think is the term folks like to use. Yeah, uh, is a better way of going about it. It, it just leads to an even more disingenuous and dishonest form of politics, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, um, in your book, you point to a really interesting kind of psychological explanation for all this. Um, mm-hmm. In your uh, when you're when you're quoting Marshall Berman, oh, right? Yeah. Who who writes that um, you know in the '60s, like according to a lot of these '60s radicals, um, basically the privileged group uh, is like not worth saving. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so like the, the goal of, of people who can sort of point to any form of privilege in their life right. Um, right. should be uh, the, the, the mission is actually to be overcome themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's like the idea that the, the privileged are supposed to defer to the oppressed, but only along identitarian lines, never because mm-hmm. they might share common interests that they, they might actually right. have goals in common. Right. right. Um and it's this kind of like weird uh, self-abnegating Kind of attitude, um, that I think is, I think it's really astute that you sort of point out that this is like one of, at least one of the origins, I think, in in the modern Anglo world, um, of this kind of like allyship model, you know, um, I think we're going to ask you just a couple more questions because we're getting a little mm-hmm. bit low on time, um, but one thing I really did want to <laughs> get into you was, uh, um, you write about the backlash faced by socialist critics of BLM, like yourself. Mm-hmm um you also write that online debate is where intellectual life goes to die which i thought was really mm-hmm. funny um and absolutely true what has the reaction to your views been like
3: uh, overall it's been you know the people who actually talk to me it's been good <laughs> 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 um you know i uh i've gotten a few good reviews you know different places people see the, the work as as important. Um, but the the biggest issue is just to be ignored, right? Which I think mm. is is a soft form of cancellation, right? <laughs> it's yes. like uh, yeah. we're not gonna make a big deal of it. We're just not gonna engage what you're saying, right? And I think that's the that's been the overwhelming response to the book, you know, in some corners. It's like uh, you know, the cold shoulder uh, from yeah. people who yeah. are, like, don't agree with it or and and just won't even take it up, right? Um, and probably we were, talk we about were... it elsewhere.
2: Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm gonna let you keep yeah. talking in a second. But we were just talking about how like there's a there's a bookstore yes. just up the street here um, that has you know all of these like very like social justice books like in the window right like mm-hmm. it, the, the same dozen that you see kind of all over yes um, and we were just like why the fuck isn't this book in the window of the store <laughs> you know like it, it's like fucking ridiculous you know. Um, but yeah, sorry. Yeah,
0: because they'll have all of the like, you know, they'll have the like Imram Kendi and they'll have yeah. like all of those, like the, the white fragility book, all of these books, right, right. and they will just put them all up on display. And I'm like, you do know that there are other thinkers who are talking about right. these ideas and coming to different conclusions, but you're just a
2: lot fucking like smarter. And it they're too.
0: not, they're yeah. just, they're just not putting it in the store. Like it's just not visibly available.
3: Yeah. You know, I actually think, you know, here's, here's my take on that. Right. I think some of it is, um, if it's independent bookstore, that's a problem, right. Cause they can, think, it is it's, it's an
0: independent is. bookstore. That,
3: they can curate their own things, but you know, uh, so many of these books that make it, I call them like airport, it's airport literature, right. When you walk mm, into yeah. the airport, the stuff that you're going to see on the turnstile or whatever. Um, you know, those are what we forget about the, the, uh, like New York Times bestsellers, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Those are not um, demand-side determinations, right? Those are supply-side determinations. Those are determinations made by, by editorial boards, right, who decide we're going to spend X amount of money to pump, you know, all of these paperbacks or hardcovers out into the public. And once they're bought by bookstores globally, they're bestsellers, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> They've already, already <laughs> produced the the inventory, even if they end up in the used book or the remainder's bin, right? Uh-huh. They're bestsellers in that regard. And it also, you know, it's, proper, it's propagandistic in the sense yes. that these, these publishers are going to, you know, they're, they're, they're basically hedging their bets to decide which books are going to be the ones that are going to, you know, going to make it, right? And which ones are going to their their investments in. And so it's the American public, Canadian public, publics around the world, they're not really receiving a sense of what's out there. You know, like with most mass culture, they're getting a carefully curated and very much profit oriented, uh, offering of, of books and ideas. And I mean, it's the same thing here. I mean, I, I, uh, I go to a few, uh, independent bookstores here and, They'll, they'll do both. Right. So they'll have like, they'll have like the, the display you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then maybe when you get inside, that there's like an anarchist, you know, socialist right. Marxist section, you know, where you can find some other things. But, um, yeah, I think some of these are business decisions that that don't help oh. any of us in the end. Right.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I also think people are afraid of uh, taking heat if they don't have like anti-racist baby in the window.
0: Right. Oh, oh, yeah, Yeah. Um, So before we closed out, there's one thing that we didn't really get to that I just wanted to make sure we touched on, because I think it's important when we are, you know, critiquing the Black Lives Matter frame, and we are saying that this is not the answer to dealing with the problem of mass incarceration and police violence. I think people want you know, they don't just want critique, they want solutions, right? So we need to offer solutions. And I think you do a really great job of offering a lot of different solutions in your book. And one of the things you talk about is the concept of universal public works Mm -hmm. um, and what those can do for communities and how this is perhaps a a direction we should be moving in. So can you just, because I don't think many of our listeners who are immersed in social justice culture have even ever heard the phrase universal public works. Mm -hmm. So can you just explain like what that means um, and why that would be, a useful strategy for um, answering the question of over-policing.
3: Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm a fan of uh, the forms of public works that we had here in the U.S. during the New Deal, uh-huh. um, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and then the Works Progress Administration, and what those were. I mean, they were responses to, uh, you know, hardcore unemployment, uh-huh. a way to put people back to work. But what was radical about them? You know, uh, in my mind, was that they they actually did work that would not have necessarily been taken up by by market forces, right? They sort of did things, created value uh, in the society that still stays with us to this day, right? So the Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, really helped to create the American National Parks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, system that we have. So much of the infrastructure was built up the uh, Civil and Conservation Corps camps. And the same is true for the Works Progress Administration. I mean they put you know out of work writers and other people um, they put them back to work doing things like you know developing travel guides for, mm. for citizens, uh, teaching literacy classes, you know developing other you know uh, written materials for for the state, right? Um, And doing things that we forget about. I can't, you know, I mentioned this in a few places, but like the um, Under the Works Progress Administration uh, Federal Writers Project, they did oral histories of people who had been enslaved in the U.S. Uh So they went around, you know, all these different Southern states and interviewed people who had been slaves in um, during their their, uh, childhood or early, you know, early adolescent years, right? And so just imagine if they hadn't done that, right? We wouldn't have uh-huh. like these audio recordings mm. of people telling their stories, what life was like, you know, what did they eat, like, what were the days like? Mm. And so we have like a, a really breathtaking and pretty voluminous, you know, set of records, you know, recordings as well as the transcriptions that tell the story of what slavery was like. That's the an anti racist politics in my mind, uh-huh. right? It's also uh, a use of, state money that's progressive, and it creates value for us as a, as a country, right, as a nation, you know, beyond what, you know, I can't imagine some enterprising capitalist would have done that, you know, in the 1930s. It wouldn't have happened. Uh-huh. So my idea is about um, how do we address the, the conditions right now, right, that right. police are charged with managing, would be to create, you know, a renewed form of public works, because public works goes away. After World War II, we shift over to a model that's more about public financing of infrastructure development mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, privatized you know, uh, implementation. Private contractors are the ones who carry out that work, and so I think we should go back to publicly funded, publicly executed uh, works projects, and it could allow us to do so many things with cities. Right? We could we could reimagine care work. In cities Mm -hmm. like Chicago or other places where you know there's a tremendous amount of need, and we know that people who who work in various forms of care have historically been the most devalued and and um, you know and insecure you know workers, right? Precarious Mm -hmm. workers, and so I just think there's ways we could shore up that as a as a sector, and at the same time provide much needed care to Mm -hmm. you know people who need it, whether they're people with disabilities, people who're older. Uh, folks who um, who just need assistance in various moments of their life, you know, after injuries uh-huh. or whatever else, children, right? There's all sorts of things that we could do. And it would just change the, the quality of life for folks living uh-huh. in places like, like, uh, like Chicago. I actually propose it as a municipal scale uh-huh. uh, because just right now, I mean, the U.S. is such a, a, a terrible mess politically at the national uh-huh. level. I can't imagine something like that happening right now, but we do know that sometimes in the U.S. Uh, state and local um, projects, you know, policies can be scaled upwards. Uh-huh. So I would see it more as like something that we could demonstrate. And I think places like like Chicago, uh, you know, Cook County, um, L.A. County, you know, maybe Seattle, there's other cities where we could see these things happening. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe some smaller cities could also implement this. But it's one way to put people back to work, but more importantly, you know, give them a form of income so they're not relying on dangerous and criminalized mm-hmm. forms of work. But it also gives us a chance to again reimagine the city and what we can, you know, ways that we can live that don't involve the kind of pervasive and pernicious, uh just marketized forces that we're dealing with right now. Right. I mean, I just I just think we can do it differently. Um and it would be one opening, right? To, to again show people that we can do something different.
2: I have one follow-up question, and I'm wondering what you think about this, because um, right now the the popular refrain um, on the part of the ruling class is that there is a labor shortage that right. they need to deal with at any cost, right? Um, and you know, uh, particularly in Canada um they've they've ratcheted up immigration numbers to like unprecedented levels um mm-hmm. because people aren't having enough babies basically and uh, and they're like well we need you know 500,000 people a year extra to right. um to keep up with the labor demand um, and so how how do you think that squares with what you're suggesting um, it's not a gotcha question i'm just wondering what you would say to a right. critique of like that
3: yeah you know um well here in the US i mean they've been touting uh, low unemployment numbers. Uh, I don't buy it. I mean, cause the unemployment figures, you know, uh, the employment that's there is this is like fast food jobs and other uh-huh. things that are being counted uh-huh. as employment. Right. Uh-huh. So I just think, um, yeah, I think that the, 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 the claim that they need more workers is always, uh, uh, you know, ploy, right. It's an attempt to, to, um, not only compel people to accept less, but like you yes. said, maybe open up the floodgates to this other surplus coming from elsewhere that could, you know, drive down the wage floors. Um, so there's that dimension of it all. I just see public works, though, as a way to to, um, you know, again, not just put people back to work, but engage in a different kind of political project, right? And so, you know, again, yeah. using Chicago as an example. You know, it's not just about the the uh, the labor itself, but the the participation of people in thinking about what needs to happen, right? And so uh, that was a part of uh, the the New Deal project, at least on, yeah. on a certain level. Um, and so opening up space for more uh, more democratic input um, would be great. But, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I just yeah, it's just I think that the, the um, the space is there, you know, uh, Chicago has, you know, some of the forces that might help it to happen, you know, could have, could could support that kind of idea. For sure. But um, yeah, you know, who knows? It's just a tough, <laughs> tough moment that we're in right now, you know? Yeah. I just yeah. think it will be Yo, better than thinking about abolition,
2: though. Eh, <laughs> probably a bit more uh, um, uh, concrete, yeah. Have you, yeah. by any chance, read uh, The Ministry for the Future? By Ken Stanley Robinson, uh, it's, it's a great book if you ever have time to read fiction. But uh, yeah, in it he just sort of envisions like a near future world where you know climate change has really like wrought a lot of uh, very severe damage, and one of the responses has been uh, basically a universal public works program mm. about like trying to mm. rewild the United States and like undo some of the yeah. climate damage that that has been done, right? Um, and it's actually such a, be- like, it made me cry, like, many times reading that book. Really? Um, and just, you know, there there's sort of, like, there's this one story where there's this girl, she's, like, moved to L.A., she wants to be an actress you know um but she just works at like some shitty fast food job because it's hard to be a fucking actress you know and mm-hmm. she's just like miserable and then la floods the entire city is like fucking underwater you know mm-hmm. and she um helps her neighbors uh, they have like a canoe or something They ha- she helps her neighbors they're going around like helping people and then afterwards she sort of like gets um kind of drafted into this like uh you know, this, um, repair core. Right. And she's doing Mm -hmm. like meaningful work with her hands. And she's like, this is the, the first time I've felt like fulfilled, you know, Mm -hmm. um, doing something concrete for real people, um, that actually matters that and and the, the way in which it matters is like completely evident. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, I always found that like really, really, it's an amazing book, super powerful.
0: Um, Kim Stanley Robinson is a great socialist, uh, science fiction writer. Very, Mm -hmm. we talk about him a lot on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I think that's probably good. We've gone kind of over time, but thank you so much, Cedric. Um, This book is so important and I am like a huge fan of your work. And I really encourage all of the listeners to get a copy of the book and read it. Um, we're going to be talking about the book more on the podcast, actually, after mm-hmm. this episode as well, because we really want people to read this book. Um, I think I am going to go into the bookstore down the street and tell them that they need to put it in the window. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but is there anything else, any other work that you're doing like lately that you want to tell our listeners about, or just like how they can find out more about what you're up to?
3: Yeah. I mean, so I spent the last year in LA and a lot of that work was around, um, helping the staff and students and faculty at the campus where I was think about the 2024, uh, uh, 2028, sorry, 2028 Olympics in Hmm. in LA. You know, Los Angeles is going to be um, they're set to host their third Olympics. They're also going to host part of the World Cup along with other cities in North America in 2026. So there's like this huge mobilization in that city right now to try to clean up certain problems as they see it, right? To get rid of homeless populations or figure out how to deal with it. Um, there's also fears and concerns among uh, activists that we'll see the same sort of repressive policing that happened back uh-huh. in 84, the last time. I don't think that that'll be as much of an issue as it was in 84, um, just because LA doesn't have the same crime problems it had back in, in 84. But um, yeah, I've been doing that. It's just a way to concretize everything and talk uh-huh. about you know, how do you have an anti-capitalist politics that's actually geared towards what's happening in the place where you live. Uh-huh. And so it was great to do that this past year. I'm not sure what form that's going to take intellectually. Me, me and a couple other people have been thinking about doing a um, oral history of the 1984 uh, Olympics from the from the vantage point of working class Angelenos. Okay, yeah. so that's still like in the the talking and discussing phase, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's one thing, but yeah, people can reach me on, on, uh, social media, you know, uh, Instagram and,
2: and, um, yeah, other places. Okay. All right. We'll, cool. we'll, we'll throw your Instagram in the, uh, show notes. Yeah. Hey, All thanks right, so Andrew. much for having me. It's been great. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was great.